Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Observer's Notebook podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I am Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thank you for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as the Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please donate to it via Patreon. You can give as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Observer's Notebook. If you'd like to join the AALPO, you can for as little as $18 a year. For more information, find us at, at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find the ALPO on Facebook. Just for, search for ALPO Astronomy. And yes, the Observer's Notebook also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. If you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of the Observer's Notebook. And now, episode 83 with Carl Hergenrother. And we're going to talk comets. What do we expect in 2020? Stay tuned for that. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. We have our uh, return visitor many, many times, and he speaks of return visitors. This is Carl Hergenrother, the coordinator of the Comet Section. Welcome back, Carl. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now, those people that have not heard you before, why don't you just give a little introduction about yourself, what you do, and things like that? Sure. So my name is Carl Hergenrother. I'm the coordinator of the Alpo Comet Section. I'm also now the associate executive director of the Alpo as well. In the past, um, I used to work at the Catalina Sky Survey, and between 1996 and 2000, I actually discovered four comets, one photographically and three with CCDs back then, so I'm also a comet discoverer. I did yeah. not know that. And I, We've never talked about yeah. that. And in fact, I'll talk a little bit about one of my comets, because it was an interesting event, I guess, you could, or non-event of uh, 2019. <laughs> and currently, I'm the astronomy lead at the OSIRIS-REx sample return mission. That's a NASA-funded mission where we've gone to a near-Earth asteroid named uh, Bennu, which is a carbonaceous asteroid. And the plan is to drop down and collect a sample of this asteroid and bring it back to Earth in 2023. So I've been I'm part of the science team as well as part of the science planning team. So I've worn a, a few different hats there. 
And we had a podcast, you on the podcast earlier to talk about that mission. And I guess you have some exciting things coming up. So once all that's released and you can talk about it, we'll have you back on to talk about the mission. Definitely. Most definitely. We've got a lot of exciting stuff with Cyrus Rex wise over the next year. So 2020 is going to be a great year for that. And as an astronomer, I'm, yes, I'm a professional, but I'm also an amateur. And I still do a lot of backyard comet observing when there is a bright comet to be seen, just using my 30 by 125 binoculars. And lately, I've been dipping my toe a little bit into uh, CCD observing with uh, remote telescopes, like uh, telescopes of the uh, Sierra Stars Observing Network or iTelescopes. Okay. Um, now, before we get into the comments of 2020, why don't you just give us a little background about what we had this past year? Yeah, so 2019, there were 45 new comets discovered in 2019, at least through the time of we're recording this podcast, which is about mid-late November. And that's about normal nowadays. Most of the comets are discovered by the professional surveys, but there are a few amateur groups out there. The brightest comet of 2019 was actually kind of a holdover from 2018, and that was a periodic comet 46P Vertinen. And, uh, or I think it's pronounced Vertinen, actually. And that comet peaked at fifth magnitude, actually fourth magnitude in December. It made a really close approach to the Earth, 0.08 AU, and was still fifth magnitude when the year started. The second brightest comet of the year was actually a long-period comet, C2018Y1 Iwamoto, and that was an amateur CCD discovery. And that was kind of cool because oftentimes nowadays, comets are discovered many months, sometimes years before they get to perihelion. So it's nice every once in a while to get a, a bright comet that's sort of a surprise that this gets discovered only in the months prior to perihelion. And so Iwamoto peaked at six magnitude in February, but it had only been discovered in December of 2018. So it was only three months prior. So when I start talking about the, you know, the comets look forward in 2020, always have in the back of your mind, remember that the brightest comet may not actually have been found yet. Good point. Very yep. good point. And it, there were a few other comets that were fairly bright during the year. There were five comets that got brighter in magnitude 10. Um, and the sixth one, hopefully, and I'll go into more detail about this comet later, which is 2017 T2 Panstars, will also break 10th magnitude before the end of the year. But the other bright comets were uh, 38P Stefan Otterma, 64P Swift Gerrels, and another uh, long-period comet, 2018 W2 Africano. Now, the biggest story of 2019 was the discovery of what we're, what we're now calling 2I Burasov, which is an interstellar comet. Um, there was an object discovered only a couple of years ago, one eye, Amuamua, and that object was pretty faint, 21st magnitude at its brightest. And even though it looks definitely like it came from another solar system, at least outside of our solar system, and there was hmm. some evidence that maybe it was had some cometary activity. There were non-gravitational forces, uh, basically non—you know—forces that were affecting the orbit that they couldn't explain. That might have been due to cometary outgassing, but no one really definitively detected any sort of cometary outgassing. Yeah, I didn't know if that one had had been actually identified as a comet. It hadn't. It hadn't. And there's other weird okay. stuff with that one. I mean, yes. It, yeah, somebody said it was a spacecraft, too. Yeah, <laughs> that was one of the, uh, the, you know, these non-gravitational forces could be because it's like a solar sail, something like that. Right. Um, it was a red object. That's not unusual for comets. Um, according to the light curve, it had this weird, what we call an aspect ratio, which is uh, if you take the ratio of the two axes. And for most bodies in our solar system, two to one is pretty much as 
elongated as objects get, maybe three to one in the most extreme. This light curve suggests a 10 to one. And you're talking like a pencil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are working on trying to explain that, but I don't think that's really been explained yet. But this Borisov comet is cool because not only is it the second confirmed interstellar object, but it is no doubt a comet. It's got a coma. It's got a tail. And for all the uh, the observations I've been seeing published in the early papers, it looks like your regular long period comet from our solar system, which maybe isn't too surprising. There's only so many elements out there and every solar system probably has it, maybe in different ratios, but probably all made of the same stuff. <laughs> and then okay. the one non-event was I actually had one of my discoveries, 168P Hergenrother, was supposed to come back, not be anything special. Though in 2012, when it came back, it did peak at a ninth magnitude, which was nice to see in the backyard with the binoculars. And it didn't show up. Oh. Now in 2012, the reason why it got so bright is because it actually had experienced a splitting event. So it had an outburst, pieces broke off. Uh So maybe that splitting event weakened it. Maybe it had a much more catastrophic event. Maybe when it was behind the sun or near aphelion where it was too faint to be seen. But it was kind of interesting that there was one day um, earlier this year where I pulled up my phone and it said, you know, bright naked eye comet to be seen Thursday night. And I'm like, Oh, this is interesting. And as I scroll down, they say, it's my comet. I'm like, Oh, that's- Oh my goodness. <laughs> so all the congratulations, I got a few congratulations at work. Oh yeah. I'm going to go look at your comet Thursday. It's like, well, first of all, it's never going to be naked eye brightness. And second, it doesn't even exist anymore. So don't worry about it. <laughs> that's wild. So uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's for yeah, 2019. Okay. Yep. All right. Now let's, let's jump forward and, and please tell me this is going to be a better year. Okay. So looking forward to 2020, it's going to look suspiciously a lot like 2019. No. Yeah. Um, and f- so there's three comets that are expected to be brighter than magnitude 10 and not that okay. much brighter. And in fact, at least one of them, I'm not even sure, is going to really be observable from the Northern Hemisphere. So the three comets, we have Comet Enki, which is, you know, it goes around the sun every three and a third years. It's back again. Uh, 88P Howell, which is another short period comet. And then there's C2017 T2 Panstars that I alluded to earlier. And that comet may brighten up to eighth or ninth magnitude. Um, it doesn't get especially close to the earth or sun, but it's actually fairly active. So it should be followable in, you know, modest size aperture telescopes for most of the year. So that's a kind of a a nice one to look forward to. And then I'm going to talk a little bit more about two, uh, three comets that are not expected to get very bright, but are just interesting for different reasons. Uh, for example, 17 P Holmes is back. Holmes remember had that mega outburst in 2007. And so it's, you know, who knows? Maybe it'll do it again. We'll have another second magnitude Holmes to be looking at. And then another one is uh, 141P Machholz, which is uh, the discovery of one of the the former Alpo Comet section coordinators, Don Machholz. And that's an interesting object that also has experienced outbursts and splitting events in the past. Okay. Now, you mentioned mentioned Panstars. Panstars is a, it's a, it's a survey program, right? Done, I think, in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. Panstars, they've got two telescopes. 
Um, this particular comet was discovered with the PanStars 1 telescope, and that was located on Haleakala, which is in Maui, in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. It was discovered back in October 2017, so almost over two years ago now. And at the time, it was 20th magnitude and 9 AU from the sun, so that's pretty much the distance to Saturn. So it was pretty far out there. It will come to perihelion this year in May, May 4th, at a fairly distant 1.62 AU. Unfortunately, it'll kind of be on the other side of the sun when it's at perihelion. It'll still be observable, but it never really gets close to the Earth. I think its closest approach is uh, 1.5 AU. And it's a dynamically new long-period comet. And dynamically new comets, if I just throw out a few names here and see if you can kind of notice the connection between some of these names, Kahootek, Austin, Ison. Yeah. Ooh. (laughs) <laughs> so these are comets that probably haven't been through the inner solar system ever. You know, they formed when, when all the comets formed out by Jupiter and Saturn, got thrown into the Oort cloud early on in the history of the solar system. And now for the first time in, you know, three, four billion years, they're coming into the inner solar system, which means they have a lot of really volatile ices within the nucleus and near the surface. And the thinking is that these ices, you know, they sublimate off as these comets get fairly close, you know, not even that close to the sun, maybe 10, 20 AU from the sun. And they appear a lot brighter and more active at discovery. So people get excited and go, oh, this comet, if we extrapolate with our regular 10 Lagar brightening law, perihelion, (laughs) we're going to have this naked eye comet and everyone's going to be happy. All those comets you mentioned, they had that huge prediction. Yeah. You know, this is going to be the comet of the comet century. Comet of the century. I mean, Ison was a comet of the century. Um, yep. Kuhutek was a comet Kuhutek. of the century. I was in high school when Austin, this is the 8990, yep. and I remember Sky and Telescope on the front cover, monster comet coming. <laughs> and it was a nice comet, fourth magnitude, but right. yeah. And so PanStars, again, was probably abnormally bright at Discovery and has been brightening extremely slowly. So it's kind of a shame that you've got an object that looks bright 9 AU out. And now here it is, you know, now we're about six, seven months from perihelion. And it looks like it's still 11th magnitude, which is not overly bright. But I'm hoping, now what we want. fingers crossed, that it gets up to at least 8th or ninth magnitude during okay. the year and it's it's going to be a east you know a well-placed object for northern hemisphere observers because it's up at high declination and will even be circumpolar towards you know march april may time frame um it's already a, an evening object so you won't have to stay up very late to see it but you know it's going to be a question as to how bright this one gets is it going to peak out at eighth right. magnitude which you know it's okay it's that's kind of getting bright enough for binoculars or is it going to be you know ninth magnitude or whatever it, but that comet is going to be, you know, if it, even if it does only get up to ninth magnitude, it'll still stay between ninth and tenth magnitude at least into July, maybe August. Though at that point, it starts okay. diving south and into the sun. All right. So what's the next? next one is 2P Enki, which is our old friend. Yeah. This will be its 64th observed perihelion passage since it was first seen back in 1786. And this, you know, it's kind of an interesting comet because it was first seen in 1786 by uh, Pierre Machon. I could be completely butchering that name, but that was uh, Messier's kind of uh, rival in finding, you know, Messier objects and hunting for comets in France at the time. 
Caroline Caroline Herschel was a discoverer, 1795. Oh wow! Yeah, and John Louise Pons, who was probably the premier visual comet hunter, possibly ever, um, early 1800s, discovered it twice in 1805 and 1818. And the reason why it's called Anki is Johann Franz Anki, who was an orbit computer. You know, basically realized that those four previous comets all looked like they were on the same orbit, was able to link them up and prove, hey, this is one object on a 3.3-year orbit. And since 1819, it's been seen at every return except for 1944. Of course, that was in the middle of World War II when, you know, most observatories were busy dealing with other issues. So the last time Enki came back was uh, early 2017. And there's three different kinds of returns. If perihelion is early in the year, then it's a good evening object prior to perihelion for the Northern Hemisphere. If it comes to perihelion later in the year, it's a good morning object pre-perihelion for the Northern Hemisphere. And if it shows up in the middle of the year, it's kind of garbage for the Northern Hemisphere. All three are good for the Southern Hemisphere after perihelion. So, of course, you can guess what year this one is. <laughs> Perihelion, June 26th. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. Yeah. So, in fact, Enki will pretty much not be observable by most people on the inbound leg. It isn't until after it passes Perihelion, and Enki is one of those objects where Perihelion is actually pretty close to the sun, 0.34 AU. And Southern Hemisphere observers can jump on it probably within a week, week okay. or two after perihelion. And it'll still be a good 7th, 8th, ninth magnitude object. Northern Hemisphere, you're talking at least two months after perihelion. And by then, it's already too faint for visual observation. So unfortunately, if you're a Northern Hemisphere observer, Enki's not going to work for you visually. That's unfortunate. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how many times I've seen Enki, but it's never... I mean, it's. I don't remember ever seeing a tail <laughs> on it either. It's right. always been pretty much just a ball of gas. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, CCDs. It looks pretty good. Okay. Yeah. I'm, visually, yeah, it's just a nice little ball. Yeah. Yep. 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 All right. After Enki. So Enki, we have another short period comet, and this is 88P Howell, which was discovered photographically in 1981 by. One of my fellow OSIRIS-REx uh, science team members, Ellen Howell. Um, Pre-discovery observations were made back in 1955. Uh, 2020 will be its ninth observed return as it goes around on its five-and-a-half-year orbit. This is an object that actually has been getting progressively brighter with time because its perihelion has been dropping. It was 1.9 AU back in 55, 1.6 AU, and it was discovered in 81. And now the perihelion's at 1.35 AU and has been that way since 2004. And as a result, the last two returns, uh, 2009 and uh, 2015, the comet did get up to eighth or ninth magnitude, which, you know, is pretty good for a short period comet. So this year, perihelion is on September 26th. And the comet should brighten probably around magnitude nine. Um, it's going to be better from the southern hemisphere. It will be an evening object. And it will be observable from the northern hemisphere when it's at ninth magnitude, but it's not going to be very high off the horizon. That's one of the downsides of it being kind of located in the 
more of the Scorpius Sagittarius region in the evening. And as you know, just from going outside in this time frame, October, November looking, those constellations are pretty much hugging the horizon right now. If you're right. trying to observe Saturn or Jupiter. Now, when you say it's perihelion has is, is is changed, perihelion obviously is is closest approach to the sun. Did it have a close approach to Jupiter or something which would change its orbit? Yeah, exactly. It seems like okay. every you know, couple decades it has a not a super close approach to Jupiter, but it comes within a few tenths of an AU, and that's enough. To that's enough, of, right? Okay. And then at some point, and I think it's within the next return or two, you're going to see that trend reverse, and it starts kind of uh, stepping back out a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yep. After how? What's Hello next? Uh, uh, after, oh, uh, after how? It, it, yes, yes, yes. So that's it for the, the objects that should be getting brighter than, say, 10th magnitude. So oh, kind of, that's it? Yeah. Oh, I mean, man. So the next object is 249P linear. And yes, it will get up to 10th magnitude. But again, it will be too close to the sun to be observed. Uh, the reason why I threw this object in there is because it actually may not be a comet in the traditional sense. Um, for starters, most comets, when you spectrally look at their nucleus, they're what we would call, they have a D-type taxonomy. They look D-type asteroids. And D-type asteroids are red. So most comet nuclei are red. This one is actually a B-type, which is actually blue, which is similar to Bennu, the Osiris-Rex target. Okay. As well as a bunch of what we now call active asteroids, or sometimes we call them main belt comets, like uh, 133 Els Pizarro and Wilson Harrington. So there is some evidence that would suggest, both from the fact that it's a bluish nucleus, as well as people who have done integrating its orbit backwards in time, that 249P may not be a comet from the Kuiper Belt or the Oort Cloud. It may actually be a carbonaceous asteroid in the main belt that then kicked into a near-Earth orbit and is volatile-rich, so it ends up showing uh, cometary features, but it only does it when it's within, say, 1 AU of the sun, so only when it gets very close to the sun. So this will be 249P linear's fourth observed return since it was discovered in 2006. Perihelion, again, end of June, uh, 2.5 AU. It gets reasonably close to the Earth in early June at 0.43 AU. And that's the real reason why I kind of highlighted it here. Not that it will be a visually observable object, though that is possible, um, but that CCD observers, especially in the month or two prior to perihelion, might be able to see an inactive comet or active asteroid nucleus before it turns on. So you'll be able to watch it, get a little rotation period, colors, and even just watch the object turn on, which is always interesting to see. Right. Huh. That's okay. And does that do it for our objects for this year, or do you have anything else? So we've got two more objects that I kind of put on the list, and they're, okay. they're, they're going to be fainter, fainter comets of interest. One is 17P Holmes. Now, this, of course, was the comet that, when it was discovered in 1892, it was in the midst of a what, they, what we're now calling a mega outburst. And then it experienced another one of these mega outbursts in 2007 when it jumped from 17th magnitude to second magnitude, which is pretty amazing. I can still remember watching that one around Halloween time in 2007 in Perseus as it was a second magnitude object. I do you remember also, that? Yeah, I do remember yeah. that. 
it's had some smaller outbursts. In 2015, it actually had a four or five magnitude outburst, though at that time it was already faint, so it only got up to 13, 14 magnitude. But this year, perihelion, or I should say this time, perihelion is February of 2021. But at the end of this year, it'll be 14th magnitude in the evening sky. And who knows? I mean, it'll be great to watch CCD-wise, but who knows? If it has another 15 magnitude outburst, maybe we'll have a you know, naked eye <laughs> comet again for the end of the year. It's a comet. Um, That's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> we both know that. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it could be that outbursts only occur every 100 years, 130 yeah, yeah. years like we saw, but it's something to watch out for. Okay. And the other interesting object, and I talked about it earlier, was uh, 141P Mockholtz. And this was discovered visually in 1994 by Don Mockholtz, uh, former Alpo Comet Section Coordinator. And at the time, in 1994, it actually had been, it was in seven pieces. There was the main comet, Comet A, and a bunch of smaller fragments that they called the, you know, component B through G. When the comet came back around in 1999, the main comet was observed as well as one of the fragments, D. And then in 2015, the main comet came back and a new fragment came back, which may or may not have been one of the older fragments. They weren't able to properly link it up. So here we've got a comet that seems to always be kind of a double comet, kind of like how a uh, Schwarzman Walkman three was back in mm-hmm. 2006. And it's kind of interesting because people have actually looked at Mach Holtz two um, to see if it was actually a producer of meteors or meteor shower. Oh, and it's interesting that it's orbit is fairly similar to another comet one sixty nine P neat. So it's possible Mach Holtz two has been kind of progressively breaking up over time and producing a family of objects. Which it must be something about the Mockholtz name because on <laughs> the first short period comet, 96P Mockholtz, is yeah. associated with multiple meteor showers and a family of smaller objects in the quadrantids with it, in, again, an inactive asteroid. So he really knows how to find uh, short period comets that are progressively breaking up. And That's so, one, yeah, and so 141P comes to perihelion on December 15th of 2020 okay. at 0.81 AU, which is pretty low for a short period comet. It might get up to 11, 12 magnitude, but again, it's one to watch because it may break up again. It may have pieces that possibly broke off last time and we'll be seeing them for the first time here. So it's an interesting one to watch, especially uh, CCD observers. Now, how close does the Earth get to the comet this year? Uh, that's a good question. And that's one <laughs> I can figure out really quick. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Usually I write that stuff down, but I didn't this time. But it's easy to find out. I don't think it comes especially close. Okay. So like, like you mentioned in the past, other of his comets have been associated with little meteor showers. And this one might, I was thinking just, it Oh, how it won't be it. coming that close. Okay. Fact, right. I think the orbit doesn't come quite close enough to produce any meteors. Uh, this year it comes about half an AU. Oh, okay. In January. Yep. And once again, for our listeners that don't know, an AU is one astronomical unit, which is approximately the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So it gives right. you an idea of, of proportion and scale. Yep, 93 million miles, 149 million kilometers. There you go. Still there? Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. Okay, you dropped out for a quick second there. Oh, no, I hit mute. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, yes, yeah. and you know... Uh, 
It's very possible. I mean, obviously there's going to be, if you know, history holds, there'll be another 40 or 50 comets discovered during 2020. And hopefully at least one of them will become of interest to uh, you know, a typical backyard observer. That's, that's true. And uh, that's, you know, get out there with your telescopes and look for some bright comets. Okay, people. <laughs> we are kind of overdue for yes. something really we, nice, especially we, up here in the Northern Hemisphere. We really we are. Out. Yeah, we got shut out the last two great comets. Yeah, we really are overdue for something nice. I mean, yeah. who knows? Never know. You never know. One of these years, we'll get that nice September, October oh, sun There, That would be nice with it. <laughs> nice, nice weather, no clouds in the sky, no rain. Yep. <laughs> Great. Well, Carl, you, have, you got anything else you want to add before we cut you off for tonight? Yeah, so just a, a little quick thing. Um the Alpo comet section is interested in all kinds of comet observations. I mean, traditionally, we usually get magnitude estimates and CCD images. Um, I've been reaching out to have a to people who still sketch stuff and trying to get them to submit sketches. I like to hear that. That's very good. Yeah, I mean, I think sketches are one of the best observations you can make because if you're really comparing an object you see today with something that was, you know, observed. 50, 100, 150 years ago, CCD image isn't going to show you what a common 150 years ago would have looked like. So it's kind of cool to see the sketches. And I'll have to admit that I like looking at what the object looked like visually through the telescope. I, I have to agree with it because I've done a lot of comet observations in the past through telescopes and you see the structure of the nucleus. You see some jets occasionally and, and like that coming off of the head of a comet. And you don't get that with an image because it's usually you know the, the 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 exposure or whatever going into the image or the uh, the photograph of the comet you know t- takes away all that detail that you can see with your naked eye or with the with the telescope. Yeah, I mean CCD images are still very important, and I, you know we still yeah. like them. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, there is some detail that can be lost sometimes, and it's sure. interesting because I was reading a. Uh, a comet book that was written over a hundred years ago. And nowadays, every time there's a comet scene, you'll always hear, you know, the news story will be like, Oh, look at the green comet, you know, blah, blah, green comet, green comet, green comet. And I don't know about you, but I've looked at a lot of comets in my lifetime, almost a hundred now visually. Mm -hmm. And I've only seen two that really had color. Hail bop, hail bop, ruby yellow. And it was a, a McNaught comet that actually had that really nice blue-green color that you always see in the photos. But I was reading a book from about 100 years ago, and one of the chapters was, do comets have color? Mm. And the answer was, no, they're usually just gray. Yeah, yeah, just shades you, of gray, yeah. Yeah, you, you kind of don't see that color except for really special events, visually at least. You don't see the color that pops up on CCDs. But we're, yeah, interested in all observations, not just of current comets, but even older comets, especially like to see pictures of old comets. And I think that's one of the, the funnest parts of this job is when I get a whole bunch of images and photographs from, you know, Halley and West and Kahootek and Aaron Rolland and all that stuff. You know, the comet side was either really young or you know, wasn't even alive for at the time. Yeah, I think West did have color. I think about that. Probably did because it got so close to the sun. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I remember seeing that it was... That was that was an amazing. We need something like Comet West. Yes, Comet Comet Bennett. That's the yeah. one that got me into it. Boy, that thing was amazing. Yeah, I'd really like to redo Hale Bob. 
<laughs> yeah. I'm enjoying it because that was a. That was just, you walk outside, you go, holy crap. <laughs> that thing is huge. That and Hiakataki. If I yeah. can redo those, redo those two years over again. That wasn't that amazing. Oh, now okay. that I actually have enough money to, you know, have a nice setup. <laughs> yeah. Have what you have now, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. We're gushing about old comets. We can't be doing that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, how can. How, Oh, go ahead. Ask that question because I think you're going to ask exactly what I was about to talk about. Oh, how can everybody get hold of you? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> go for it. So there's two ways to get a hold of me at the comment section. One is just to email me, and you can email me at carl.hergenrother at alpoastronomy.org, as well as comments at alpoastronomy.org. And I believe these emails will be listed here on the podcast, so you'll be able to see them and click on them. And also, I've been routinely every month uploading what I call kind of like a comet news summary for, you know, highlighting comets to observe in the month, which I send out to the Alpo members. But I also create a Cloudy Nights forum page. And so that way you can read kind of an, uh, an edited version of that update. And, you know, there's a comment section. So there's a lot of back and forth between various people as to observations that are made or questions about comets and so forth. So if you just go to the Cloudy Nights page and search the forums for just for Alpo Comet, you'll find me. Great. We're actually we're actually going to have somebody from Cloudy Nights come on the podcast in a month or so to talk about that uh, that website and what's been going on with the family and everything going on there, too. Right. That's that that's a resource that's been out there forever. And I look at my membership and I've I think I've I've been on Cloudy Nights since like two thousand four or something like that. It's just crazy. That's one that I'll have to admit I didn't really know about until about a couple of years ago. And I'm oh, wow. and I think it was because of you. Because oh. you posted one of these podcasts on there and then I looked around like, Oh, I need to be on here. Ah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well good. I'm glad I'm glad we got you into it. Yeah. And since the comment section has been posting on the forum, I've kind of doubled the number of observers who've been re- routinely getting uh, oh. observations. So it's worked out great. That's fantastic. That's really good. And I, and I can tell you, these the comment podcasts are historically the most popular. When I look at the numbers of, of downloads, I mean, your annual ones are always the big ones. Hopefully, we get people interested to uh, get out there and look for comments too. <laughs> to to right. bring any more interest and again if any bright comets or any other major discoveries of comets are made during the year you and i will get together again and bring it to our listeners yeah let's hope we have a reason to <laughs> I, I hope so well carl it's been a pleasure once again to have you on the podcast thanks for having me all right Well, that'll do it again for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. Again, I want to thank Carl for coming on and giving us a preview of what looks to be a disappointing 2020 with comets, unless something exciting happens. And if it does, be sure we'll be sure to bring it to you on the Observer's Notebook. We upload a new episode of the Observer no- Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. You can also listen to us on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and Amazon Echo. 
You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving us up to $35 a month, where you will receive one year's membership to the podcast, one year's membership to the ALPO, and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I really want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seedentop, for his generous support of The Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much, Steve. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. If you have questions or uh, program suggestions, you can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at ObserversNBPod. Until next time, my hope is that you all have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>